Hi guys, I'm Chris. And I'm Mike. And welcome back to this week's No Limits, a Mitch Rap Podcast. How you doing this week, Mike? I'm good. It's nice to have the three-day weekend, so a very restful and reflective Memorial Day to you and the family, and anyone yes. you know who might have served. Yes, this episode is coming out on Monday, Memorial Day, so happy Memorial Day. Um, really reflecting on the men who have, and, and women who have served and gave their life in, in, in service. So shout out to all of our veterans. Uh, thank you to all of our veterans. Um, and yeah, hope you're enjoying this nice weather on this long weekend. Nice weather for you, maybe. D.C. area is not doing too great. Kind of kind of rainy and cold. High of 52? What's up with that? It, it's it, practically June. It's a high of 52. It was a high of 52 yesterday, but um, Monday, I guess... We're recording this on Sunday, but tomorrow we're gonna. I'm gonna go golfing because it's gonna be a high of sixty. So uh, that's true. Actually, actual Memorial Day. Memorial Day Monday, should. I was, I was speaking as of the future. Point. So <laughs> good point. Good point. Good point. Yeah. Yeah. Oh boy. Well, um, we've got a lot going on. Really exciting interview for you, but we have a listener shout out. A big shout out to one of our English listeners from across the pond in the UK, <laughs> Malcolm Williamson. Malcolm, thanks for reaching out on Facebook. He did share some thoughts with us. And Chris, I haven't passed this on to you yet, but... I know, I'm just chuckling reading the uh, reading the notes ahead of time. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. He agreed that a few weeks ago, we said our episodes might be slightly better and certainly more enjoyable if we throw back a couple of beers in advance. And he thought Pursuit of Honor might have been the perfect time <laughs> to, you know, uh, that would have been the book to get drunk on. Would have drowned our sorrows over that slow-moving plot line. You know, we should have done like an in-person, our first in-person pod where we split like a bottle of Booker's and just yes. really drowned our sorrows away with that one. That was a rough book. I don't know. That was a really rough book. <laughs> but we are coming out of it. We are yes. going into this month of June. That's right. With one of my favorites. I know one of your favorites. Absolutely. So Absolutely. We have a lot of good podcasts in store for June, you know, including the movie. We have the movie to review with That's our right. buddies, the Com Majors. We're going to be bringing a couple of different people on the podcast to talk American Assassin. So, yeah, it's great. Yeah, I'm it's excited. going to be good. It's going to be good. And um, another big thing, though, to. Uh, to wrap up before we move on to that, we have a giveaway to do. Yes. A patron giveaway. Right. So thank you to all our patrons. And this month we decided to give away a paperback thriller of your choice. So yeah, you'll tell us whatever paperback you would like. If it's a Vince Flynn, Tom Clancy, any other names out there, we will hook you up with it. So thank you to everybody who helps support this podcast. And if you'd like to learn more about the perks and the goodies of being a patron and helping support the show, just visit MitchRapPod.com and click the orange Support Us on Patreon button. All right, let me go ahead and spin that wheel. Here we go. Hey, patron from the very beginning, Jeff P. Nice. Congrats, Jeff. He has been around with us from the start. And to be honest, yeah, has already one of the most impressive collections of thrillers <laughs> I have ever seen. Maybe Remember, you can get him a new one. 
right remember he said he has like an entire like storage unit i think climate yeah, control just of books yeah. i think so yeah. yeah that's awesome that's awesome hey maybe yeah. if he already has every thriller known to man he wouldn't mind if we throw his extra one he just won into a, a package for the troops when we send out our next month uh care packages you can with operation him. paperback yeah we'll see it's like the 50 50 you know when someone wins a 50 50 there's always that pressure to give it back to the organization. <laughs> it's like, oh, but you're really going to give it back to us, right? I'm like, <laughs> no, I was planning on keeping it. <laughs> it's like 50-50. They should just call it like 90-10. <laughs> right, 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 right. I guess it depends on the organization. If you win at like a sporting event, you know, screw them. These these big owners don't need that money. Right, right, but right. But if it's right. a charity event. Yeah, if it's like, you know, you're at some charity event for – Right. I, I don't know. Pick pick your uh, your pick nonprofit. Your, your, your nonprofit. It was right. like, yeah, you, you better give that money up. Right, right. Well, I mean, there's an announcement for Memorial Day. I will be this week shipping out three more care packages of thirty Vince Flynn books to Very the nice. troops. And you know what's awesome? This connects to our guest today. He let me know that every time Vince came out with a new book, within like a week or whatever a box would show up at the CIA for Rob, our guest, to ship them out to his folks out in the field. And Vince made sure to get a package of 50, 60 copies of each new book that came out to Rob, who you're going to hear from today, and he would get them out to his agents and uh, operatives in the field. So that was pretty awesome to hear. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, we're uh, so unfortunately, Mike. Uh, Mike had to fly solo on this. I'm I'm up in Ithaca, New York. I have my graduation and wrapping up some few things uh, from my dissertation. So I could not uh, be on this interview. I was really bummed because you know. So based on wait, last week episodes, we had Matt Devoe, right? And the reason we had him on is because we listened to a podcast of his where he's interviewing um, our guest today, uh, Rob Richer, who. You know, we had found out that, you know, and Rob's going to go into this during the interview with, with Mike, uh, Vince had based the soul of Mitrap on this guy. And he was his point of contact, you know, at the CIA to learn more information, to make these books better, do the research, you know. So uh, Mike did a really good job with this interview. You guys are really going to enjoy it. He's a cool guy. And uh, yeah. I guess just one note before we jump into it, a quick error on my part during our interview, we talk about the character Rob Ridley, but mistakenly say Ritter each time. Rob Ritter is actually my wife's uncle's name. So I was like, oh, yeah, Ritter makes sense. I know that name. And then when I started reading again, I was like, oh, shoot, it's Ridley. It's but yeah, Ridley. every time we say Rob Ritter, we're referring to the character of Rob Ridley, which Rob Ridley, Rob Richer, Vince created this character after our guest that you're going to hear about right now. Yes. That's pretty cool. So hope you guys enjoy this interview and have a good Memorial Day. Or a good three-day weekend. <laughs> Today we welcome a very special guest who served as the CIA's Associate Deputy Director of Operations and before that Chief of the Near East Division, but more importantly, a good friend of Vince Flynn and quite possibly the closest we have to a real Mitch rap. Welcome to the podcast, Rob Richer. Thank you. It's great to be on the podcast with you. I've uh, 
Uh, I've heard great things about your podcast. You've kept Vince's uh, dream alive to a lot of people and kept him out there. So uh, as, as a man who was very close to him, I deeply appreciate that. Well, thank you. So a few months back, I nearly lost my mind listening to an interview with you and Matt DeVoe, who was our guest last week on the podcast. We talked all about cybersecurity, and he's the expert on all things technology. But how about your background? Can you tell us about your career path, how you got to where you are today? And I mean, please, please lead up to your introduction and relationship and friendship with Vince. So um, I went to the Marine Corps right out of high school. I uh, signed up in 1971. I uh, went through boot camp uh, summer of 72. Was an enlisted Marine uh, for about six years. I uh, got picked up for a commissioning program with the college at a university called the Citadel in South Carolina. I uh, got commissioned the Marine officer, was an infantry officer. Uh, stayed in the uh, Marine Corps until I reached the uh, rank of captain. Uh, got married and uh, was recruited, joined the CIA. So I did 11 years in the Marine Corps. I went in the CIA. I went in initially as a ground branch, a special operations SAD type. Uh, and they decided to put me also through the full farm training to become a case officer. So I was dual headed, uh, ground branch and case officer to recruit spies. And then I spent the next uh, 15 years in the Middle East, uh, multiple stations, uh, doing what spies, uh, case officers do, recruiting spies. Uh, uh, my first assignment was in Yemen running a civil war. Uh, then from there on, I uh, progressed up to the ranks, uh, became a, uh, a senior station chief, came back from that country, uh, took over the uh, training program at the agency for new officers. Uh, after that, I left and went to, uh, I didn't leave, I got promoted up to be chief of the Near East Division, uh, and then eventually the ADDO, which is the number two deputy director of the clandestine service. Well, the chief NE in the summer of 2002, uh, I got a call from the uh, director's office, Director George Tennant, and he said, we have a young writer here who needs to know about the Middle East. And uh, he also wants, he'd love to talk to a man who knows the Middle East and was a Marine. Uh, so uh, I said, great. Uh, I'm, at that point, I was no longer undercover. I could tell people I was CIA. Uh, and um, so uh, they brought Vince down to my office. And uh, which we don't generally have outsiders into our operational offices. And uh, Vince Flynn and I hit it off. Uh, he w wanted to be a Marine officer. He had actually gotten started in the PLC program. It didn't work out for him. Uh, he has had an affinity for Marines. If you look at some of his characters, uh, he'll, he'll deal with the dark side, which is Navy SEALs. His real love are Marines. We all know that. And Vince would tell you that. Uh, so uh, he... Uh, uh, we started talking and he said, look, I'm writing, I'm writing my next book, which I think was Executive Power. 2003, right? About that period of time. Yep. He was, so he, was, he had done well with his first couple books. Uh, and, he, and, he was, and he had started, he obviously introduced Mitch Rapp. But this was Executive Power. And he really wanted, he wanted to have a better feeling for how an agency officer does stuff. And George Tennant and the lawyers gave me permission to be pretty forthcoming to him. Obviously, protecting secrets, talking about how, how we do some things, uh, how we work with people, what it's like living overseas, how we do operations overseas, how we're integrated with special operations, which the agency is, uh, and then uh, what we can and can't do. Now, Vince wrote a lot about what we can't do, but he made it we can do it, uh, you know, particularly some of his assassination uh, skills. 
But uh, so Vince and I then developed a personal relationship. When I retired from active service at the agency in 2005, he was my, uh, one of my guests at my retirement in the building. Uh, he uh, took me with him once to deliver a book to George uh, Bush, President Bush, who was also a avid fan of Vince Flynn. Every time Vince had a new book, Vince brought it to the president directly. Great that relationship was. Uh, he was involved in my family's life. Uh, I visited him at his home in Minnesota. Uh, we explored caribou coffees uh, around Minnesota. That was his fan coffee. I didn't realize that. That was the home place where it was developed. I didn't realize that. Oh, I didn't realize that. He educated me. Uh, we shot guns. I introduced him to a couple foreign uh, uh, heads of state, Middle East heads of state. Uh, and uh, he traveled with me. So uh, great relationship, a great, great friend. Wow. Can you just tell us again that story of your the retirement party where, was it Vince who said to you, you are Mitch Rapp? Or you were the inspiration? So we're at retirement, and Vince said this to a group. He said, uh, you know, because uh, no, remember, he had Mitch Rapp before he met me. He said, you are the heart and soul of or at least a part of, he used those words, of many of my characters. But he said, in many ways, you're the soul of Mitch Rapp. Wow, the soul of Mitch Rapp. There's our title for this episode, The Soul of Mitch Rapp. <laughs> and it, which was really great, because to be honest with you, I'm not the soul of Mitch Rapp. I, I was a friend of Vince Flynn. Vince Flynn was the soul of Mitch Rapp. There you go. I mean, thanks to you, I guess, he had such a good grasp of the know-how and the different character personalities within the CIA with everyone he created from Irene Kennedy and their little black ops partner, Scott Coleman. How well do you think Vince took all of your experiences that you were willing to share and insider knowledge and did uh, justice to them? Because we know these thriller novels and movies and TV can grossly mischaracterize a lot of what our case officers and, and the agency is doing. How do you feel that Vince captured the essence of your job and your life? Well, I'll tell you, he did it a number of ways. So you're exactly right. There's this, there's a Hollywood embellishment of, of, of what operations people do. Uh, there are some really cool things they do, uh, but not every person can jump out of an airport, 24 people before lunch, uh, you know, and, and, and speak 16 languages. Right. So with, oh, in every book that Vince did, and I, I, I worked with him, uh, he asked for my counsel on every one of his books from 2003 on. Uh, he, uh, he, uh, and as you notice, after when he started to progress from 2007, 8, 10, uh, the last couple of books, there were more of a special ops feel to him uh, because we were migrating to all these special ops things with the agency. So he was incorporating new stuff. So uh, he, he, the heart of what he said about what the agency, the special operators, what operators in the field do was there. Now to help sell the books, you had to make him a little more attractive because so much of, of, a, of an opera officer's life is lonely. And he conveals that with Mitch Rapp. Mitch Rapp is always lonely. He's in his head. A case officer, an operations officer overseas is generally by himself. Uh, when we send the person out to do something, to meet a terrorist, uh, a Russian intelligence officer, someone who might be peddling uh, chemical biological weapons, generally it's one guy. And he'll have a pistol with him. Uh, maybe a long gun, but generally just a pistol. And he, he may have someone around nearby, but it's not like in the Marine Corps where I always had a platoon or a company right. squad with me. Right. It's a lonely life. Vince was the most, he was the best at capturing the loneliness and the broken relationships. 
the broken personal relationships, the broken operational relationships, because for every officer in the field doing something great, there's a bureaucrat in Washington somewhere trying to say it's risky. Why are we doing it that way? Or, Or trying to play a political game. He captured congressional influence and the problems that caused. Right. He talked about presidential politics. Uh, he was great. He brought it together. He, he captured some of our best directors, best attributes of our directors, and some of the worst attributes together and stuff. To me, he, was, he always put something that I had done in one of his books. So at one point, he decided that I was going to be uh, not only help him with Mitch Rapp, he created a character called uh, Ritter, who was the chief of the Middle East and CIA. Yes. Ritter Richer. Oh, wow. Ritter's secretary was Penny. That's the oh, true name. Wow. That's the true name of my secretary when I was chief Middle East. Wow. And Vince adopted her. So he did that for her because she was so nice to him. He did that to me to give me a, he said, I want to, he said, you're, you're not traditional, but I'll give you a traditional base for a while. And, and you and I will, you and Mitch will fight like you and I fight over details. And if you notice in the book, there's this banter sometimes between Ritter and Vince. Protect and defend. I noticed a lot of that. And protect and defend, he's like in the Middle East and he's driving around, you know, old beat up cars to blend yep. in. And yeah. And so wow. I, that was me. And so we had a, so I said, look, you can, you can portray me. I said, it's great for my ego when people go, are you Mitch Rapp? <laughs> uh, I said, God, no, I'm not Mitch Rapp. Uh, but when you convey, you can take some of what you say is Mitch Rapp in me. But more importantly, if you can take Ritter, my secretary, Penny, uh, family, because remember, I have a family in the book. Ritter has a family, and, and a heart is on the wife and the kids to risk the family. And my family were at risk overseas many times. So he was great. So he took those nuggets and made the hearts of the story so that an operator would know the book was balanced. Some of his biggest fans were in my community. Uh, and, you know, every time a book came out, he would uh, come out and he would say, uh, Rob, how many books do you need for your station in Afghanistan uh, in the hardship countries? And, you know, I'd say I need, give me 50 for Pakistan because they'll pass them around 50 for wow. Saudi, wherever. And guess what? Four days later, those boxes showed up. Wow. And then we'd send them overseas. So, uh, yeah, he, uh, so going back to what he said, he incorporated, I think, the honesty and the integrity of what we do. Uh, and he also, because he liked us. As he said, he would always wanted. To, he said, "My dream was to eventually work somewhere like the CIA." I think he 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 put us on a pedestal in many places. Right. Cared that much for his country, and for those he wrote about. Wow, and I, I mean, just thinking of that, I can only imagine how many young people, for decades now since he started writing, have been influenced by this type of media, particularly his characters like a Ritter or, or Mike Nash or so many others. Yes. And, and that's maybe why they pursue a career in intelligence or whatever their skill set may be, why they may want to put it towards, you know, defending our homeland, using that, you know, to support our intelligence apparatus. So the work you did to put Vince on that path, uh, I, I really think is just is so powerful. And speaking of powerful, uh, the books, I love that he would give you those books. We, we are trying to do and emulate all the goodness that Vince brought to the community. And so our initial round of fundraising to start the podcast of proceeds after we covered costs went to the Prostate Cancer Foundation in memory of him. And now we're doing a partnership with Operation Paperback, where every month we send around 30 uh, Mitch Rapp books to the troops serving abroad, usually um, Army, 
but Operation Paperback has a list of, of folks, and including veterans hospitals as well, actually, and uh, different VA centers. And we're trying to keep that alive. So it's great to hear that he was he did that for you and, and your folks on the ground. And he did it for our memorial funds. So uh, uh, we lost seven officers in coast Afghanistan who were killed by a suicide bomber. And uh, about a year later, uh, a couple of years later, my, I decided to ride a bicycle from Jacksonville, Florida to uh, San Diego. First time ever we would have a CIA memorial ride. We actually had a van with CIA on the side of it. We did. Uh, we spoke across Vince was one of the first ones to help support and organize it, uh, to, to, to ask people to contribute. And we raised more than a million dollars Wow! for the, our fallen because we're, we're a quiet place. We don't get the benefits of the, uh, the military does in some ways. Uh, our families, you know, uh, don't get uh, a, a lot of the, uh, the uh, notice because when one of us dies, we die. And most of us become stars on walls. The family may know a little bit of what they did. But it's, it's not on the front page of a newspaper. So Vince wanted to put it on the front page in his own way. So he did it by supporting our wounded, uh, wounded in the special operations community. But he also did it in his words. Because his words are a, li- a living testament to the successes and the failures right. of special operators and intelligence officers and operations officers. And I think, you know, I can't think of a better, better way to describe what my colleagues and I have done. My colleagues, I mean from military, special ops, CIA, in Vince's words. Because Vince's words are true. Yeah, uh, not many of us actually smack our boss. Not many of us tell the director to go uh, jump off a ship or point a gun at a uh, senior foreign uh, U.S. government official. A lot of us would like to at one point in our career. But uh, there's been a lot of risky things done, and and he wanted to memorialize that for people to see. So God bless uh, Vince. Uh, he was a man of, uh, of honesty and integrity and loyalty to his friends. And that does come through in the writing. The Actually, the first time I heard your name uh, was in a dedication to, I believe it was Extreme Measures, uh, where you got a personal shout out right in the, the first page, the dedication of the book. And that also happened to be the book very much about the families and the impact on a personal level of operators with this character, Mike Nash. And Mitch is actually willing to be his crutch who gets him out of the field once he realizes you know, the path he's headed down and Mitch takes that upon himself, a testament to your family and everyone else who served. Uh, it, it's great that Vince was able to capture that so well and do do justice to it. But another thing that I want to talk about is the plot lines. Uh, I'm sure you've seen a lot uh, in terms of the bigger crises, right? The international intrigue, the the political back and forth. Do you feel, and how well in your experience, do a lot of the storylines of Vince's book match up with reality? I mean, we have... Um, certain books that are based with Iran as the actor, or we have the Saudis, you know, pulling the purse strings or funding the extremism. In recent books, Kyle Mills, who took over the series, has covered the war in Yemen more recently and um, the outbreak of a pandemic and uh, yep. disease. So what about, and we've actually seen pipelines and infrastructure. How well do you think the, the plot lines and the storylines match up with the real world? Well, so Vince was given pretty good access to, to our concerns whenever uh, at the period of time he was writing the majority of his books. So uh, when Vince was uh, writing about a, uh, a particular person that had to be targeted in Iran or a type of person uh, who might be looking for a, a chemical, biological or nuclear weapon or dirty weapon, uh, he was basing that on legitimate concerns that had been given to him. Not without, you know, not with specifics because you can't give them operational details. But he was, he was one, he was 
smart enough to talk to a lot of people. Two, he read the headlines. But three, he was intuitive. And he was given the ability by talking to me and a few others in, 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 the, in Washington, uh, and to include George Bush, uh, to understand what we were worried about. Mm. Uh, and there were periods of time, uh, particularly from, gosh, 911 on, where we were worried about, we know who funded the people, I mean, the people into our, our to into the towers in New York, all, all came from Saudi Arabia. So that was a storyline. And they were, they were funded not directly by the Saudi government that we know today, that we don't know that yet, but we, we don't believe it was, but by people associated with the Saudi government. So that was a storyline. Uh, looking at people who were looking at trying to uh, cause a uh, catastrophic loss of life of some type, uh, whether it was putting something on an airplane, that was one in story, embedded in the storylines. And I think what Kyle has done, uh, I feel bad because one of his, when he first took over the book, I wrote a, a very bad review of his first book. <laughs> because... When I was just damned so, so, so loyal to Vince. <laughs> it's understandable looking back. But he's picked up. He's picked up the flavor and he's modernized it. And I think Vince would be pleased. Vince could do it. I tell you, Vince would do it better, but Vince would be pleased. But I, so I think that what Vince did was he actually captured things that we were working on, maybe not knowing we were working on them, but that were the concerns. And, and you know, so much of what our concerns are are in public testimony to Congress. What are the greatest threats to the United States every year? That's briefed by the intelligence community, Homeland Security, Department of Defense. So a good man, a good reader can, can, can take that and visualize, hmm, here's what I'm going. So you take a new theme, you take that year's theme, whether it's cyber, uh, whether it's infrastructure attacks, bringing down a grid, whether it's a dirty weapon, whether it's a terrorist who's got a plan for sleeper agents in the United States, take the characters you've got already and you build your story. Right. Then you talk to people. He was really good about. So he talked to me about the operations. He talked to multiple special operators about how they work in the field. Uh, he talked to Department of Energy uh, on, on, on infrastructure and nuclear power. The man was relentless. Uh, when he would come into Washington to do his research before a book, and his, his, his life cycle on a book was horrible. Uh, and we talked almost every day, except for the summer. So between June and July, because he had to deliver a book, generally to his, uh, the, the copy by August. Mm -hmm. he, his, and he was always late on deadlines. He was, uh, he was always saying, my publisher's going to shoot me. I'm <laughs> two weeks late. Because he, either he didn't have an idea or he loved his family. Yeah. Something he wanted to do with his son or and his wife. Um, or, or help the community somehow. I mean, I, I, he, one, I flew out to a couple of his black tie things where he was giving speeches on the benefit of the wounded warriors. Uh, and, and then he'd go, Rob, I'm supposed to be writing. I got to write. <laughs> I got to write. He would actually start in April. Uh, with, and so his cycle was, okay, get the book out, turn it to publishers. Book tours come out in the, in generally in the fall. Uh, or if the book was launched in May, the spring. Uh, and then I, he generally took two months off to recoup, catch up. Uh, and, and then he would just start the whole process. I'm, 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 I hear his voice in me now where he's saying, oh, Rob, Rob, I want to talk. can't talk right now. I'm two weeks behind. So I'd say, no problem. He goes, well, let's talk. <laughs> then we talk for 40 minutes. And then he goes, right. Rob, Rob, we're gonna, I'm going to get in trouble. And my wife's going to kill me. Uh, my publisher's going to kill me. I'm blaming you. Uh. Uh, <laughs> but he was, God, what a gracious guy. What a nice guy. Oh, That's great. just, uh, yeah. But he did his research. Going back to your point, sorry about reminiscing about him. Oh, I love it. Please. <laughs> did his research. Yeah. 
Well, I was going to say about reminiscing, let's get some stories. I mean, what what just stands out to you? Do you have a fond, a specific memory with him? I mean, these chats sound great. And and also about his um, his timelines. We heard he he didn't keep any notes. And when Kyle took over the series, he's like, where's the research? You know, what's the book going to be about? <laughs> and they handed him a piece of paper and said, that's all Vince wrote down. So, you know, just can you give us the feel uh, of one of these conversations or a fond memory you remember with him, even if it was something uh, a little bit on the more social side of things? So we were walking. I remember I grew up in Minnesota. It was everything was frozen. So I think it was like February. Everything's Minnesota's frozen all year round. But it was frozen in February. We were walking across the ice. Uh, in this in the city, this lake, and uh, near not far from his house, and, and we were walking, we were talking, and he was he was uh, uh, he was asking me a question about uh, how do we get someone into Iran to do an operation, and so I said, look, uh, there's a number of ways you get him get him in the country. You can go across the land border, flying as a foreign citizen uh, with with good documentation, and they're good. The Iranians, it's got to be great documentation. I said, it's not so much getting in the country uh, or getting out. If you're not, is how do you conduct an operational act and get the equipment you need? So then we talked. We said, well, how would you do it? I said, well, you got to work with the Kurds. The Kurds straddle both sides of the border. He goes, uh, well, I got to go. I got to go to Kurdistan. I said, no, you're not going to Kurdistan. The, the Iraq war was just over. There was, uh, uh, there was. Uh, we were having all kinds of problems. Al Qaeda, as you know, was all over the place. ISIS hadn't developed yet, but it was coming. Uh, there were Iranian surrogates working uh, against the Iranian government. Uh, at that point, we had caught Saddam Hussein. I remember that way that we caught him earlier. And he goes, well, what do we do? So I had a couple of Kurdish friends uh, who were back in the, we'd come to the States, uh, one for medical, one for some other type of stuff. And I said, talk to, will you talk to Vince Flynn? And so I remember he came to Washington, met with them because that's where they were. In a smoke-filled room, and of course, you're not supposed to smoking rooms, but they're all smoking. Vince is coughing, uh, and he's taking notes, but his notes were generally a hotel three-by-five piece of paper. <laughs> one word. One word. And he told me that's how he wrote a book. Yeah. One word. He said, because I've got the characters. So all I need is a storyline and my research. Yeah. And once you told Vince something, he didn't forget. It, so I told Vince one time Penny's name. Next thing I know, she's in a book. She's in the book. <laughs> He's in a book. And he met her, wow. but he was in the book. Uh, uh, I told him uh, when he met my kids, he, so he didn't want to use my kids' names, but he used variations of the kids' names uh, when he started writing about, about Ritter's family. He uh, was amazing because I used to expect, when I wrote something, I expected hundreds of pages. He goes, no, Rob, I probably have a, a pad. Uh, maybe a couple that I picked notes up as I talked to people like you. And I, I, I weave the story. Uh, he says, my hardest thing is not writing the story. It's coming up with the theme. Once I figure out what I want to write, I do it. Uh, I was given permission to talk to him about some of the operations I've been on, uh, having to do with weapons uh, interdictions, uh, one case having to uh, uh, get into a foreign embassy uh, and out, which remember he does. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, so... Uh, and so I shared that with him uh, without getting too many details in. And he, he ran with that. He embellished it, as he always did with lots of the stuff, which is many you have to as a writer uh, in fiction. But he got the stuff right. Yeah. But you know what was, he was best at? is So he said, Rob, I would, he said, tell me things that drive you nuts. Mm. And I said, well, that's the long list. 
Uh, I said, so for example, it can take 22 reviews to get someone to sign off on recruiting an agent because you have to go through all the security processing. Uh, validation, you have to make them do this or this or this. Uh, we streamlined that, but that was a concern. Uh, I said, uh, uh, simple things like having to work undercover. It's hard to live two lives. So he was really good at capturing that. Now, you notice Vince really doesn't have a cover. Vince is, I mean, not Vince, Mitch is Mitch. Yeah. Uh, he gets out, I guess they have these flyby covers, but generally he doesn't have to live under a, st- a horrible job where he does it eight hours a day and then goes does operations at night. So he was good at capturing that. And in particular, when he started talking about me in the book as a character, as chief of the Middle East, the bureaucracy of day-to-day life. So uh, I shared a lot of that with him. That's a hallmark of Vince's writing, just wrap up against the bureaucracy and willing to do whatever it takes to get through that brick wall. Busting into a, a seat, Congressional uh, hearings and the director's office. And, you know, he, so when I retired, as I was getting ready to retire, I retired because of a concern with the leadership of the agency. And so I went and spoke. I was asked to speak to the Senate uh, for uh, Intelligence Committee the SSCI, in a closed-door hearing, which he leaked and eventually showed up in the Washington Post. wasn't supposed to. I spoke very frankly. But as I, once I left there, uh, Vince, because of his spies, said, Rob, what were you doing on the Hill speaking to Congress about the intelligence community and where the problems were? Uh, and I said, well, just doing what Mitch Rapp would do. And uh, he laughed. But that was, uh, uh, he told me afterwards, and that ended up being in his book, The Mitch Rapp oh, Moment, speaks to the SSCI and says, our leadership doesn't do this right, this doesn't do this right. And uh, you, need, and you senators, need to do your jobs. I didn't say I love that. But he took it and ran with it, yeah. That might be, you know, I, I, I want to hear more about the spy stuff. And I do want to get to, to your career and, and ask you a little bit more about, uh, we love Vince, but we, we definitely want to hear about you as well. But um, that might be your most Mitch Rapp quality right there, being willing to lay it all out in front of the politicians and uh, say what has to be said. But um, yeah, can you maybe get into a little bit more about what do you what do you um, recall about your time at the agency most fondly? Was there a person or a major influence? We know Rap has a lot of influences from Thomas Stansfield and Stan Hurley and Irene Kennedy, who helped mold and shape him. Who would you recall as a strong example of leadership or some watershed moment in your career at the agency that that you you remember very well? So I was blessed to have multiple multiple senior officers when I was a junior officer who were good. Several who've passed, so I can say their names. Jim Flaherty, who was my first boss in Yemen, who was a uh, great, great officer. He was the, he was the army guy who uh, served in Vietnam. When you looked at him, he looked like the uh, caricature of every one of us. You know, kind of balding. Uh, I'm not balding. But he was balding, cigarette smoking, uh, slow talking, laid back, feet up on the desk, willing to go out and take a shotgun out of the, uh, the office and go out and lay in the ditch somewhere if something's going to happen. And uh, taught me the business. Even though I've been trained, he taught me the business. Uh, great guy. Great guy. Died too young. Uh, of cancer, just like uh, a different type, but like Vince did. Uh, people like that who taught me, you know, to recruit, to convince someone to work for you, a foreign representative of a foreign country, is extremely hard. There are those who walk in and volunteer. You know, the one who has heard the agency's paying money, uh, he wants to get out of a country he's in, and he's wanting to give up some secrets to go. We call those people walk-ins or volunteers. And you're not really doing a lot of work to do that. Uh, where the work comes is if you're trying to convince them to stay, to go back. Convince them to stay for two years, that so you give them some, some equipment and meet them quietly. 
uh, and you get more information. You're doing your both the service, and you're getting, and he's getting kind of like a, a credit bank, which may help him down the road when he comes somewhere. He wants to be a citizen of the United States or somewhere, because you can help them get that if he's done great service to America. Uh, but the but the, the the tap dance, the dance of recruiting someone that you meet under a cover, where whatever you are, and I've had some I had some strange covers, but you're working under a cover, so you get to know them under that cover. You slowly get them talking, learn everything you can about them, convince, convince, start working on where they might, what they're interested in might overlap with what you need. Eventually, drop your persona and go, look, I'm really CIA. I want you to work for me, uh, for my government. Uh, we'll protect you, uh, which is uh, not always true because you know, he's committing treason in his own country. But we try to, we try our best, and we mean it. And at the end of that, it's it's seduction, in many ways. And at the end of it, it's, uh, you know, we're going to take care of you, whether it's financial, whether it's relocation someday. And, you know, some of our greatest spies didn't do it for money. They did it because they believed their system was wrong. And a cause, yeah. Yeah, a cause. So learning that skill set is not something you can teach. So we have a major training program. It takes our guys a long time to get out in the field. Um, particularly if you're doing language, it adds time to it. Right. Convincing someone, whether it's a known asset that someone else recruited and you're taking over, someone you're meeting blindly, Vince captures the level of trust you have to have for someone to do that, but also sometimes the worry that the trust isn't there and you're being led the wrong way. The guy's a double agent, triple agent in one case right. or something like that. So uh, for me, it was shooting the human side. Uh, human, how do you recruit spies? And then in operating in countries like Yemen and other places in the Middle East, uh, where, you know, uh, I, so I'm a brand new officer. I'm in Yemen. I've only been there a couple months. I don't speak Arabic, mm. even though I'm a Middle Eastern officer, because uh, I had to be rushed out. There was an assignment. They wanted someone. I was a Marine. They figured I, I knew enough to get me out there after I've been trained. So I'm, all, I'm an agent. And as I'm leaving the agent meeting, uh, now you, you, you've got images of Yemen. Well, Yemen, uh, 40 years, 35 years ago, there was nothing there. Mm. So I'm walking on a dirt trail from a village outside of the capital of Sana'a. I'm walking back, and there's these gangs of wild dogs. And they'll attack you. I've got a 9 millimeter, So these dogs start chasing me. So I climb up on a pile of refuge. Uh, and they're starting to come up. I'm kicked one. They're starting to come up. And Vince used the dogs in one of his stories, but not, not the full details. Rap, Rap was always hesitant about dogs, to be exactly honest right. with you. That's where it came from. He always has been. Yeah. yeah. So wow. I, I shot one of the dogs. Well, as soon as I shot it, a uh, Yemeni security patrol heard it. So a bunch of uh, Yemeni tribesmen, uh, which are supposedly security guys, pull up in a, uh, a small little uh, pickup truck. So, and, and every image you've ever seen of what they look like is what they look like. Right. Three guys chewing gats. And you know what gats is? Yeah. They have that in Somali. Is that what you hear about the, a lot of the Somalians on the coast chewing? Yep. Hallucinogenic a little bit. Three, not like this of green stuff in his face. Three guys in the back all with AK-47s. And they're looking at me. And they're not pointing their weapons at me. They're Arabic. Basically, what they're saying is, what the hell are you doing on the top of a pile of dirt, a refuge with <laughs> dogs? dogs? I don't speak any Arabic. So I, I, I know enough words not to get to, to help a little bit. So I said, yeah, yeah, whatever. Uh, and uh, uh, the guys, so I jump in the back of the truck and they're so under the influence of God that they didn't really say to me, uh, we got out to a, 
intersections, the wrong word for Yemen, but we got out to a trail where two other trails intersected where there were lights. I jumped out and said, thank you. Yeah, 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 and took off. But yeah, so things like that live with you. Uh, all three of my kids are products of uh, overseas assignments. Uh, uh, one was born in, in an Arab country. Uh, what it did for our family, because uh, you know, my wife was evacuated when an embassy was, became part of the Iraq war. So she was evacuated, had to leave with three small kids under the age of five, travel by herself back to the States. The, the, the impact on family and my kids, uh, and then they came back to the States. And in many ways, they weren't Americans. So we came back to the States from a foreign station where I was in charge the summer of 911. Wow. Okay. My youngest son identifies as Jordanian. That's where he was born. Okay. Uh, he's American, but he's a, he born in a station in the American embassy. But he likes to tell people he was born in Jordan. When 911 happened, it wasn't good to be an Arab. Yeah, hard to navigate that. You know, at that point, he, uh, he, they really didn't know what I, my young one didn't know what I did. Mm -hmm. uh, the other ones kind of figured it out okay. uh, eventually. Uh, but uh, it was hard. So it was hard coming back to the country uh, where there are parts of small groups overseas where in the United States, everyone's a professional as a kid. So if you're on a swim team in the United States on the East Coast, you've gone to some swim camp. You're, Whereas our kids puddled in pools and, and did real well at an international school because right. it was just doing it. It's like uh, pickup baseball. Recreational. He just did it. So it was hard. It was isolated. But he captured that feelings. Uh, Mitch captured that. But for me, the experiences of meeting people, I've, I met foreign, I met people who grew up to had some intelligence services, some of the greatest characters in the intelligence world in the Middle East, guys who saved multiple, uh, no, Hundreds of U.S. lives from terrorist attacks. Some of the precursors to 911 uh, was a threat called the Millennium Threat. Uh, a Jordanian, a senior Jordanian intelligence officer, talked to us out of school, gave us the information, and this is now public record. And uh, we stopped a threat to three different sites in, in that country. Uh, they're great partners of ours, but the point was, these are people you met. Right. These are people you meet. So yeah, you know, if you ask me what I take, besides the fact that I, I, I loved being an individual. And that's generally what a, an ops officer is. He's an individual. It rests on his skill set to recruit someone or to handle someone, to make a decision, because there's no one second guessing you in the field. Right. Mitch captures that. And sometimes he goes off on the wrong tangent. We did. I, 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 I made many, many mistakes. But he, and you know, in personal relationships, he, kept, he captured what many of us in my organization caught was dysfunctional marriages, bad relationships. Because you're gone all the time. Now, I was blessed. My wife was a Marine as well. Well, she is me, whatever, whatever was. But she's a Marine as well. And Vince used to joke about that. You married a Marine? Uh, she kicked your butt every night? And I said, yes, <laughs> uh, Yeah, But we married 38 years. She's lived in some, some, some interesting places. But the point was, it gave me experiences like that. It made us a stronger family. Yeah. On this podcast, almost every book, I come back to the same point that, yes, Mitch Rapp, can shoot better than everyone else. Yes, he can fight better than everyone else. Yes, he can take care of business and hunt the terrorists. But perhaps one of his greatest skills is not only situational awareness, but relational awareness. He can read people, whether it's the enemy yes. or whether it's the politicians, and he can work them from an angle that's very personable. You know, he'll walk into a room where he has to interrogate three guys, and he'll know to go over to the junior guy because he's a lot less hardened. Or, you know, radicalized. So he might be more willing to speak, you know, where you go to the top brass, he might know more, 
but he's going to be harder to crack. Yeah. And so Rap would read if if time is of the essence, you know, which guy is he going to pick just based on how they're handling themselves and body language. So that really seems to match up with a lot of what you're saying. Yes, it does. And, you know, one thing we haven't talked about is Vince captures what Mitch was at the very beginning, which was a lost man. Mm. He's lost his uh, uh, fiance, right? High school sweetheart. Yep. He's out on his own, but he's lost her. He knows he wants to do something. But he wants to do it on his own. He doesn't really want to be part of a structure, but he needs to be part of a structure. To get the skills. Get what he wants to get. And many of the people who come, that, that, that go into the, the special ops, go into the agency, uh, are looking for something. They're looking for something bigger than normal, which makes them uh, not uni- unique to themselves. So, Because no one does what we do because their name's going to be on the front of the Washington Post unless they really screw up and get in trouble uh, and it shows up. Uh, but for the most part, they're doing it without ever living with that. And he was, and that was, think about it, that's Mitch Rapp at the beginning. He wasn't doing it to get beside the site as this young guy who teaches himself all this stuff and goes out and kills bad guys. He's doing it for himself. He's got to, he's got this. It's inside him. Inside him and it's eating him. Yeah. Got to satisfy that, that and when he does, it, he unleashes it and harnesses it in other ways. But that fire never goes away. And I will tell you that the cool thing about being an operations officer is you can recruit a spy from uh, uh, every year, every all through your career. You can be out doing that forever. You can't be a SEAL when you're 50. You can still be a SEAL, but you won't be out in the field. You'll always be a SEAL. But I'll tell you what, you can be a 50 or 60-year-old. As some of our guys who went into Afghanistan after 9-1 were, we had to bring guys back with a certain language skills. Many of them were dated. So we had people over the age of 50 dropped on helicopters at the top wow. of those mountains to recruit the tribes before the military arrived after 911. President Bush asked at a, at a meeting not long after 911, George Tenet, the CIA was there, the military was there. And he said, when can you guys get into Afghanistan? We had the will. We had the willpower at that time to, to go in and get the job done. George Tennant said I could have my people there in a week. And then we scrambled guys who were, some were retired, some had military, most, some of us had military experience, some had other experiences, but they went in and they kicked, they, they started a process and they received special forces when they arrived. It was our guys sitting on a mountaintop. After the fact, yeah. Yeah, after the fact. But that, it's all because that passion never went away. That, that flame was still inside. They, they stepped up when called. Guys come back on, on contract just to keep being with you that business. It's pretty cool, isn't it? Yeah. So you can stay uh, operationally young for the rest of your life. It's kind of like the uh, fountain of uh, youth for us. So let me ask you, we talked a lot with Matt last week about current threats and things. And, and I asked him at the end, we were very dour on we need to update our critical infrastructure. We need to get better at cybersecurity. Our bureaucracy and uh, institutions need to be reworked and how they respond to things. I said, well, what gives you hope? And he seemed very positive about the younger generations and their, like we're saying, their willpower, their passion, their, their flame for this. How do you think we're doing on the next chapter? Getting people ready, like younger versions of yourself, our younger Mitch Raps. Is there the next Mitch Rap out there? A lot of us fans are hoping Kyle can bring back maybe Irene Kennedy's teenage son or some of Mike Nash's kids, or even you mentioned Ritter and a few of his kids we heard about briefly in a few books. Who's going to step up to the plate next? And do you feel confident that we have that next generation uh, taking the lead? Yes and no. Mm-hmm. For Yes, I think we've got, 
I, I, I know and I, I meet when I'm overseas and I go to the Middle East quite a bit right now still regularly. And, and I'll meet with some of our officers uh, in a certain capacity. And my God, they're good. They have languages. They like what they're doing. Uh, so I think that we have the capacity and the interest. We're a different generation though. So my generation, the generation that Mitch started talking about, we're in careers for life. Right. We came from so many years in the military and we expected to retire from that job. Many of the young men and women who come into the career force, uh, not post 911, but probably post 2010, want to do it, but they'll move when they need to. They'll leave. Right. Go private. And they'll go private. Uh, and maybe not to do intelligence work. Uh, I mean, we bring in, I mean, people that come into our workforce are pretty impressive and they're, and they're recruited by many people outside. Banks, I mean, international experience languages were great. We, we know how to deal with people, which means you could sell anything. Yeah, but it's the retention. Yeah. So where I'm concerned is burnout because we've been rotating our young officers and our older officers since 911 for 20 years to, to hot pot. So we've taken, yeah, we're still in quieter places. We're still in the Vienna's of the world and Geneva's, uh, places like that, Paris, but not, but that's used, not many. Uh, and the majority of our officers are rotating, have been through Iraq, Libya, Yemen. And, uh, and, the, and those are generally the ones who are the, the, the very aggressive ones. And they're tired. Mm -hmm. They're tired. And, and, and when you come back and then you, after you've been, you've been carrying a weapon, doing the, uh, that kind of stuff, at high intensity operations, having real impact that no one knows about it, but self-satisfaction. And they say, well, when you come back to Washington, you're going to spend one year working at desk doing paperwork. Uh, you have to do a counterintelligence tour. They start thinking, well, if I can't go back out for three years, maybe Citibank looks good. I'm going to go up to Alaska and run a hunting lodge, mm -hmm. which is someone, one of, someone I know recently did. Uh, so I'm worried about burnout. I'm not worried about motivation. I'm not worried about skill set. They're there. And some of these young guys and young men and women, because they're all together, and what they've done in Afghanistan and these remote areas by themselves, in Yemen, without uh, Blackhawks to protect them and, and 60 soldiers around them, it's friggin' amazing. So they're there. We have the next Mitch or Michelle Rapp. We have them. I'm worried about keeping them mm -hmm. uh, because of the- Supporting them. The, and supporting them. And, and you know, remember, we have PTSD issues too. Mitch has PTSD. Anyone who did what he did and the injuries he's had and, and what he's seen has PTSD. It will catch up to you. Right. Now, it won't catch up to Mitch unless they have to write it into a storyline because it's important. Yeah. But it will, but, but a real person it catches up to. So we've got to worry about that. But God, you know, I, the people, and Bill Burns just took over as the director of CIA. I've known him for many years. He's exceptional and he's a leader. So I'm not worried about that. And we have a president who cares for intelligence. Uh, that's important. Uh, we have a secretary of state who cares for the intelligence he gets. We have a worldwide reputation. Our partnership with military is unbelievable. So my, my biggest concern is what I've just said to you is, can we keep them up busy enough where they stay interested to stay? Because what kept me in was, hey, I've been, I've been in the government 30 years. I might as well go one more. Right. Let's start something else. That attitude's kind of lost with my generation. Uh, yeah, in any job. Think about yeah. it. Uh, so I've been in the uh, government seven years. I speak three languages. I can leave a $60,000 a year job where I'm being shot at. For 120,000. Six digits, yeah. And I want to get married and have kids. Right. Or I am married and have kids. Or I have a partner or whatever. Yeah. 
So Citibank's a lot safer than Yemen. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, so, yeah. So my, my my biggest concern is can we can we protect the workforce both from being a bureaucrat coming back to a bureaucracy after all the years in the field and saying I hate this life. Uh, uh, Oh, and can we keep them and nurture them and, and also help them with what could some of those things are bringing back from all these war zones? Yeah, well, that's that's interesting take on an internal kind of uh, challenge uh, or yeah. barrier that we're going to be facing. But how about externally? You know, we live in a very complex. So to, ge- to do a little uh, geopolitical nerding out here, very unprecedented times. We just saw the colonial pipeline, you know, COVID, obviously. What do you see as our biggest external threat? Is it something economics? Is it infrastructure? Is it a is it a non-state actor getting their hands on some sort of nuclear biological capabilities? Walk us through that. So look, I think uh, I worry about all of the above. Uh, one of my greatest concerns is that the fact that it's a non-state actor, which is causing us our cyber problems. Now, many of those non-state actors have linkages to someone. Uh, some of the ransomware attacks, particularly, you can say, yeah, there's probably a hand behind it. We know that a lot of the uh, attacks that come out of China come from affiliates of the uh, PNLA, the uh, Chinese uh, military and the intelligence wing of that. The people who attacked us, uh, the oil pipeline recently and some of the other infrastructure, while well, they came out of Russia and they say they are privately and not connected to the government, very few things happen in Russia that are not connected to the government or have some government tie. I mean, the, the organized crime is tied directly to Putin and some of his people. So I, I, I would say to you that uh, while I am, I, I think the governments do get involved there, my greatest concern is it's really hard to target a non-state actor because they, they can live better, greater in isolation. And how do you get someone to penetrate a, uh, someone like that to give you intelligence? Uh, because almost everything you have to do is direct action. You either have to take them down and destroy them because you know the, the, there are enterprises that you can't you and i can't penetrate and go live with them uh it's really hard to get people into those close societies where most of those people have known each other they work remotely and don't know each other in some cases but it's really hard to get the bona fides to be in there and it's not something that happens overnight so they're not uh they have to be destroyed uh, which means better cybersecurity, which is what Matt was talking to about, better infrastructure protection. Look, all of our all of our oil companies in this country have not spent the time or the money on, on what they should be doing in terms of protect their infrastructure. Some of our power grids, look what happened yeah. in Texas. Uh, and that was, that, was, that was a weather fluke. Tell you what, there should be redundant systems, national grid, things tied in. Imagine a coordinated attack if uh, you know, change in the weather can just do that. Exactly right. Uh, and look, we're seeing some of what those coordinated attacks do, for instance, in Iran, when what probably our Israeli uh, denied uh, actions to uh, take down centrifuges uh, and other stuff happen. So I'm, I'm mostly worried. God, no, I'm worried about a lot of stuff. I am worried about the non-state actors. They're harder targets because uh, they, they, they disappear. They go away. Uh, in terms of state actors, look, China is having its way with an East Asia. They have now for a number of years. I still, I'm hoping that there'll be policy now which will help us with that. But economically, they're cementing relationships with what were our traditional allies out there, whether it's the Philippines, whether it's Vietnam, Cambodia, Southeast, uh, yeah. Australia, they're moving through it. Uh, and that's going to be a problem for us uh, because econ- the economics are what drive the world today. You know, we've seen our own military downsizing, not planning on the Great War again. They're not looking at a World War III of the conventional type with tanks. Right. They're looking at drones and cyber 
thing, and they're downsizing people. Well, China's been doing that for years. Uh, Russia, uh, I worry about too. Now, I was chief of Russian operations. That was one of my out-of-body experiences for three years. Uh, and Russia has a sense of empire, always has. And Putin is Emperor Putin, both by mentality and action. Uh, we know what they've done in Ukraine. Yep. What we, what, just what they did in the last two days to support Belarus and bringing that poor guy down. Right. Uh, and, and saying today that they're not going to allow any, uh, anyone who diverts uh, around uh, Belarus will not be allowed to go through Russia either. Uh, they're basically approving it. They're emboldened, it seems. And because no one's held them accountable. Mm. And uh, hopefully the, and, and I'm not going to throw rocks at any administration, but they have to be held accountable. And they weren't. China was allowed to grow. And that probably goes back to administrations, but typically in the last four years. Got Saudi Arabia, you have a crown prince who could be, will probably be king of Saudi Arabia unless something happens for 50 years. He's only in his mid-30s. They live to be 90 because of the best health care and uh, because of the money they have. He's sanctioned having a uh, green card American uh, journalist uh, cut into pieces. Right. We have such economic ties to them with certain industries and arms sales. Many other countries in the world, we would have shut relations or held them accountable. So you've got that. Then you have the fraying of what are traditional uh, organizations. NATO. NATO, yeah. Uh, NATO's had some serious internal problems, and we generated a lot of those. Climate is a serious issue. And, you know, uh, there so many countries are, are, are doing what they can, but there's got to be a whole answer. There's got to be a whole world response to that. Right. And we're not going to get to that. And there's some great headlines today about how scary that is. Our own infrastructure in the United States, roads, everything else. So look, there's a lot of things to be concerned about. I, I think we have a national will that needs to be recaptured. Mm-hmm. Mitch Rapp talks about that, a national will. And Vince was a fan of that. You know, the greatest generation we had after World War II, that's still out there. Great, we have great divides politically for a number of reasons in this country. Vince always said, you know, 9-1 brought us together. And maybe we should have a 9-1-1 every 20 years. God forbid. I mean, but the point was something that brings us together because we're so far apart. So if you were to ask me my greatest concern every day, it doesn't, it's not a foreign threat. Mm. It's our internal threat. Uh, the internal threat to whether it is to be an American, the fact that we prob- we have more internal uh, concerns in terms of security, dissident groups. You know, I've, I've heard you recently say in an interview that uh, you view domestic terrorism as one of the bigger focuses that our intelligence community needs to get a grapple on. Yes. Uh, can you expand on that further? I mean, especially in light of, well, January 6th and, and so many other recent events with the um, election. Can you expand on that when you said domestic terrorism should be a top concern for the intelligence apparatus? January 6th could have been catastrophic if they'd gotten their hands on, on the Speaker of the House. Right. Uh, and that was without weapons, uh, not real weapons. I mean, there, there were guns, but I mean, uh, talking people going and shooting people in the hallways. We have groups in the United States who believe that uh, there needs to be a, uh, an overthrow of the government. Uh, there are militias in the United States who believe that. There are, uh, there's a political divide being fueled by, us, uh, as Mitch would say, some of our own congressmen, both sides, driving people farther and farther apart. And w- extremism develops generally from not having a voice, not having food needs, uh, and religious religion drives that. So if you think about what happened over the last couple of years, religion drove dissent, it, cre- it helped fuel ISIS, it gave the baseline for ISIS, uh, it gave uh, 
Uh, it gave the best line for, for extremism in many, many forms around the world. And religion is used for that. In this country, we see evangelicals, and uh, I'm a Christian, so I'm not going to say, but who've taken a certain party line that it's one way or the other or not, whether it's supporting Israel or other stuff. The problem is all these groups, whether it's evangelicals, whether it's a Democrat or Republican, no one's willing to get and talk to either side for the most part. Mm -hmm. And that's the problem. A democracy is supposed to have discourse. So look, uh, and, and we have such a plethora of weapons in this country. And look, I have weapons. I'm not going to say, I'm, I'm not giving up my weapons. Uh, Mitch would kill me if I, or Vince would mm -hmm. look down and say, what the hell are you doing, Rob? Rich, I'm ready you out of the next book, any book ever. <laughs> Your character will die off violently. <laughs> <laughs> but he said, I mean, when we can, when we don't blink an eye when 10 people are killed in San Jose yesterday, and that followed on five other instances of the same type this week. And it's not because, and this isn't a, it, 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 there is, there's a bigger issue, I guess, on gun control, it's not my area. But so much of it is people feeling hopeless or lost for some reason. And, and I think that's part of what drives us. It, it, no one's listening to my point of view. Mm -hmm. uh, I believe an election was stolen. I believe it was Russians. I believe whatever. And since no one will convince me otherwise, because I watched, I have so much social media. Right. That what am I going to do? I guess I have to take to the streets. Yeah. That's what worries me. There's a fragmenting of American society and the inability of people to come together. You know, it's interesting to bring it back to Vince here and hopefully end on a lighter note. Yeah. Uh, he wasn't writing in an age of social media. Uh, and he wasn't writing in an age of that strong of political division that we're we're seeing. And and this is something Kyle's always said that came up before. In his lifetime, he would have never seen the rise of ISIS. And so I think that's a challenge Kyle faces is, you know, how would these characters that I didn't create, but I am the custodian of, how would they adapt in a world of social media, in a world of division, in a world of a different terrorist threat, slightly different, but a lot of the same uh, motivations of, you know, an Al-Qaeda or and now he has to deal with that, and he has to be the custodian of these characters. Well, that's the same way I see our CIA and our FBI. They need to be the custodian of these national values, even in a world that's ever-changing, and learn to adapt to that. So I think a, a lot of what I've heard from you today shows that we have the people willing to do that. Let's invest in them. Let's make them feel part of the community. Let's make them feel part of this country, that with whatever their personal background is, they're, they're not isolated. That by stepping up to these institutions and following leaders like yourself, and you mentioned George Tenet and the other people you've had in your career, let's let's keep them, let's value them, let's hold on to them, and let's have the political willpower on the Hill to, to back them up and give them the support they need. Young men and women patriots out there doing this every day. Young, not so young. Uh, and, and they're doing a great job, whether it's the agency or the military or in Homeland Security or in the Bureau. So now I... Uh, thank goodness they're doing their jobs. It's a thankless job in many cases, but there are good people. Well, we want to respect your time. So uh, just one last question. Uh, what have you done, uh, gone on to do post-CIA? What's, uh, what's it like? Uh, I don't know if you would consider it getting out, but uh, what, uh, what lay ahead for you uh, after the CIA and uh, after this interview? What's next? Well, so look, I had an interesting experience when I left this, uh, the agency. I went to Blackwater. Uh, and I was there for uh, about uh, for a year uh, as the vice president for intelligence for Blackwater before they had their problems in, uh, in Iraq. I left there to a spinoff to be a CEO of a company called Total Intel Solutions, which is where Matt and I worked together. Matt DeVoe and I worked together. Okay. That's where I met Matt. Uh, after that, I left and was the CEO of a company called Ultima Group, which was a 
kind of a uh, headhunter company for senior executives, using the skills I learned to recruit spies, to recruit people into big business. Uh, from there, I've been, uh, after that, I stepped down to, from full-time work and I've been doing uh, board meetings. So I'm on boards uh, or advisory groups. That keeps me uh, comfortable. And I, and I travel quite regularly still to the Middle East. I, there was a period of COVID I did not, but I like to keep first. And I meet a lot of people I, that I've met over the years that I understood to Vince too. Uh, and, you know, Vince's name comes up quite a bit. So uh, it's keeping me really occupied. And I live uh, close to uh, the Naval Academy. And I, I, we, we were the opportunity to meet a lot of these young men and women who are going to be uh, future leaders in the Navy or the Marine Corps. And uh, that keeps us young dealing with them. So God forbid Kyle has to get to that point in Mitch Rapp's life or whoever is the custodian of the Mitch Rapp series next. Um you might be getting a phone call to learn about what it's like for a Mitch Rapp to get out and, you know, move on and, and help the country in other ways. Exactly. <laughs> I'll, I'll gladly share that with him. Uh, uh, but I'll tell you what, Mitch can keep doing it till he's about 50 years old. Uh, okay. From personal okay. experience, I can tell you, you can, if you stay in shape and do what you're supposed to do, you can do this for 50, 55. There you go. Well, it's been great talking to you. Uh, we always like to end by just saying, is there anything you'd like to plug for the audience? It could be a book, a movie, something you're watching, Something you think the people should know, whatever's on your mind. I just watched a movie uh, that Vince would love. Vince and I love movies together. Uh, and, and as an aside, so Vince uh, had a, was a, a very, very straightforward Catholic. And Vince, uh, I used to, every, so Vince uh, saw a movie called Brokeback Mountain and walked out because he said, I just can't take this type of movie. So it doesn't mean he did, he, he, it wasn't a lifestyle issue. It was simply, he said, I didn't like the movie. So every day, every week from Amazon for about six months, I sent him a copy of Broke That Mountain. <laughs> uh, it drove him nuts. It drove him nuts. But look, there's a movie I just watched, which I think Vince would love called Nobody. Uh, and it's, it's, it's about a special operator called No, it's, but it's, on, it's Nobody. I think it's a rental right now. It'll, well, it's still on all the things, but watch Nobody. You'll see Vince Flynn in that character. All right. Well, thanks for coming on the show and uh, really appreciate hearing about the soul and inspiration behind Mitch Rapp through your work and your life. Thanks for talking to us today. Well, and good luck to you. Yeah. Thanks so much, Rob. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. All right. Hope you guys enjoyed that interview with Rob. Great guy to talk to, or seemed like a great guy to talk to for you, Mike. Um, I wish you were there. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't great flying solo. I'll need need my wingman next time. Uh, yeah, no, you did a great job though. I enjoyed listening to it. So it was. I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. I mean, I just loved hearing the personal stories of a good friend of Vince's. I, I think this is our our biggest episode, biggest interview so far, where I got to learn about Vince and who he was. Rob definitely had a close relationship and special friendship. Right. Yes. All right. Well, next time when we come to you, we are going to be discussing our first podcast of American Assassin. It's finally here. Let's go. It's finally here. So if you want to break out, dust off your old copy of American Assassin, read up to about have it through the book. We'll, we'll discuss that next week. Uh, again, we said it at the top and I'll say it again. Uh, we have to thank our patrons, including our special operator, Sherry F., our special agents, George, Matt, Don, Dennis, Peggy, Catherine, Ray, Bridget, and Jeff, and Mark. Um, this podcast wouldn't happen without you guys. Uh, please, you know, 
Subscribe, rate, and review as a review us using your favorite podcasting platform. Five stars on on Apple, please. You can find us at midtrappod.com or on Twitter and Instagram at midtrappod. And as always, just let Mitch be Mitch. Just a disclaimer, this podcast is not affiliated with Vince Flynn, Kyle Mills, or Simon & Schuster, but thank you to them for bringing us the wonderful world of rap. And the music soundtrack is Guerrilla Tactics by Raphael Crooks.